Mary Horton, Sharon Hensley, and Annette Craver. Three beautiful women who either turn up dead or simply vanish. They were from all parts of the country, but with one thing in common, a man named William Felix Vale Sr. It would be 54 years before he's held accountable, and it would take more than police, but the families of his victims, and in particular, Mary Rose Craver and a diligent journalist, to take him down. This is the story of Felix Vale and the Gone Girls. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Itch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in Albania. Okay. Mirasai vainai. Mirasai vainai. Mirasai vainai. You did that very nicely. Well, I don't know if it was close, but. <laughs> <laughs> I... Thank you, Albania, for yeah. listening. And thank you for allowing me to butcher your welcome. <laughs> well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review the podcast. You can subscribe wherever you're listening. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button below. You can find us on Instagram at Hitch to Homicide or on X at H2H underscore podcast. And if you want true crime all the time, (laughs) please join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Just go to Facebook and type in H2H In-Laws and Outlaws, answer a few questions, and you're in. Go join. It's a lot of fun. It's a good group of people. Yep. We're getting loads of case suggestions and true crime listener stories. Keep them coming. We appreciate everybody who listens every single week. And when you take the time to drop us a note, we love it. Yep. Well, this case, man, 54 years before this guy gets taken down. It's quite something. Wow. I'm going to jump right in today. Before I get started, let me thank some sources. People Magazine, The Clarion Ledger, Reddit, USA Today, and Gone by Jerry Mitchell. I only read a few excerpts, but I will provide a link to his book along with all the other sources in the show notes. He wrote a book based on an article that he wrote in the newspaper. Okay, well, you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. William Felix Vale Sr. is born on August 19, 1939, on a dairy farm in Montpelier, Mississippi, to parents Nell Rose and his dad Ray. He's one of five siblings. He was a kid who would skip out on his chores, and he liked to wander off into the woods for days, apparently. Wow. He's a cute kid. He's smart. But he was different than the other Vale children Mm. when Felix's mom said that they couldn't keep their cat's new kittens. He shot them all. What? Yeah. Wow. He didn't have to study too hard in school, and learning apparently came very easy to him. Hmm. When he's young, he thought about becoming a preacher. His parents are very much into their church, but then he thought about psychology. But in the spring of 1957, when he's almost 18 years old, he moves to Sulphur, Louisiana, where he starts a job at a chemical plant. 
Okay. He will later earn his high school diploma. Felix was tall, a little over six feet. He was blonde. He had blue eyes. He's a handsome guy. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that he's not. He is. That's part of his charm. Okay. He enrolls at McNeese State College, which is now McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. He was charming. He was liked by the ladies. Mm. He drove my favorite car that they don't make anymore, but a convertible Carmen Ghia. There you go. And he was. You know, he was hot stuff. Right. He would take many girls on rides in his Carmen Ghia. And according to one of his buddies on campus, Bob Hodges, the ladies loved Felix and Felix loved the ladies. <laughs> Hello, ladies. <laughs> according to a girl at McNeese at the time, he looked like he'd been, quote, touched by heaven. <laughs> one of those ladies was Mary Horton. Mary Elizabeth Horton was born on February 16th, 1940 in Eunice, Louisiana. Okay. Her parents are Floyd and Lily May. I love that name, Lily May. <laughs> Lily May. Southern names. Gotta yep. love them. Yeah, especially down in Louisiana. <laughs> and Eunice. Yep. She also has two brothers, Alan and William. Mary was beautiful. She was blonde. She was the homecoming queen in Eunice, Louisiana. Hmm. She wrote for the school newspaper. And when she graduated, she decided to go to McNeese State College, where she went through sorority rush and became a Chi Omega. Uh-oh. That's what you were. I was a Chi Omega <laughs> in college. Yep. <laughs> According to Felix's buddy Bob, Many men were in love with Mary, and many vied for her affection, but it was Felix who stole Mary's heart. She had friends who told her that he was not the man for her, but she defended him and said Felix was just misunderstood. <laughs> Mary's friend and sorority sister Sandy will say that Felix always seemed to have, quote, a thumb on her all the time. Oh. But Mary wrote about Felix in her diary, and she told her friends how happy she was with him. Then on June 20th, 1960, Mary confided in one of her friends, quote, I really do love Felix, but I don't think that I like him anymore. He's really sweet, but we don't see eye to eye on things, end quote. Hmm. She asks her friend to set her up on a date with another guy, hoping that Felix would get the hint mm -hmm. and leave her alone. Right. Yeah, that usually doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what kind of guy it is. Some That's guys true. would be like, yeah, okay, fine, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. But after she has this date, Felix comes to Mary saying that he suffered from a disease, and that disease was Mary. <laughs> God, this guy's, okay, whatever. <laughs> nice lines, You're dude. my disease and my cure, both, honey. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. He tells Mary that he's changed. Ladies, how many times have we heard that? I've changed. Yeah. And she says, well, I have too, Felix. <laughs> but they start dating again. But Mary still went out with other guys, like a boy named Kelly McFarland. And she went to a house party with Kelly. And after this date, Kelly learns that Felix was angry. Mm. And he wanted to, quote, kill him. quote. As the story goes, Kelly and Felix met up in some dark woods one night. That's the last place I'd want to meet up. <laughs> dark woods, dark alley. That's like running into a, a barn full of sheaths and knives. I mean, at least if you met up in the dark alley, they'd find your body. Dark woods. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. But there was no fighting. 
They just went their separate ways. But he did confront Kelly. Hmm. After this, Mary is miserable because Felix is so jealous. And there was an incident at a pool party where Felix walked up to Mary and slapped her in the face. What? But Mary kept defending Felix, saying he was a, quote, wonderful person. It's like battered wife syndrome. It's a little bit like that. Very much like that. On July 1st, 1961, Felix marries Mary Horton in Eunice, Louisiana, and they honeymooned in Acapulco, Mexico. She married him. She married him. Jeez. Later that fall in 1961, Mary takes a job as a second grade teacher at Moss Bluff Elementary School. They're living in Lake Charles, Louisiana. By December, Mary realizes she's pregnant. Now, I don't think Felix was all too happy about this. He didn't want a child. And Mary's sister-in-law told her that Felix thought the only reason Mary married him was to have a baby Mm. and not because she loved him. You know, Mary, you could probably date somebody else and marry somebody else and have have a a baby. baby. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Mary blamed herself for Felix feeling this way, that the only reason she wanted to marry him was to have a baby. Hmm. And she said that was because of things that she said to him. And on the outside, Mary is playing happy couple, but she feels unattractive while she's pregnant. Most women do. And Felix agrees with her and tells her, you are unattractive, pregnant. Wow. Yeah, you're fat and ugly. Guys, tell your pregnant wife or partner you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Absolutely. That's in your wedding handbook, guys. It's in some handbook. I'll tell you that much. I always said my my, uh, wedding vows were, yes, dear, of course, dear, and I'm doing it now, dear. There's my wedding vows. I'm rolling my eyes. (laughs) I'm joking. Rolling my eyes. Mm -mm Yeah. Felix, remember how he used to disappear for days in the woods when he was a kid? Mm-hmm. Well, he would disappear for days while he's married to Mary. Wow. And Mary actually tells her mother that she's thinking of divorcing Felix. Hmm. And her mom, who's a devout Catholic, talked Mary into staying and working on her marriage. Thanks, Mom. Well, that was kind of a thing back then. Yeah. You know, you didn't it's just true. walk away. You tried to work it out. Yeah. But I don't think her mom knew the extent of what Mary was going through. Right. Not to mention the fact, you know, when she's dating him, she's told everybody he's this fabulous guy. Right. And I'm sure she told that to her mother, too. Um, Of course she did. Yeah. Felix would work at the chemical plant and come home complaining about his boss. And Mary was doing so well. She's pregnant and at school. Mm -hmm. She's doing so well that a television station considered having her host a children's television show. Really? Yeah. Wow. Mary's a world beater. Yeah. On July 1st, 1962, Felix and Mary have a baby boy. They name him Bill. Bill is actually born on their first year anniversary, wedding anniversary. Okay. Mary adored her new baby and loved to sing Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star to him. Hmm. But neighbors are seeing through their charade of a good marriage. And one neighbor, Jeanette McCann, said that Felix put Mary down all the time, saying things like, quote, why don't you go into the house and put on some makeup so you can look like Jeanette, end quote. Oh, man. This guy's pushing it. He's brutal. Yeah. It's also around this time that Felix took out 
two life insurance policies on Mary, with one of them being a double indemnity, meaning it would pay twice as much for an accident. Hmm. And there are old news accounts that say it was $50,000 to $150,000 in benefits. Wow. On October 28, 1962, Felix and Mary are out on their boat together. Felix is running trot line on the Calcasieu River. And if you don't know what that is, a trot line is a heavy fishing line that's got shorter little baited branch lines. Mm-hmm. And they're commonly referred to as snoods. And they suspend down at intervals. And then they use clips or swivels with a hook at the end of the snood. It's a way to, to fish for lots of fish at the same time. Right, right. I didn't know that, so I wanted to explain it to everybody. Yeah, well, actually, I didn't know they were called that. I knew what those lines were. Oh, we really? Were, yeah, we just called them, you know, like multiple hook lines. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I know that now. Rob can fly fish, <laughs> but apparently not trot line. <laughs> yeah, I've never trot lined before. <laughs> Both of them go out that day, but at 7.30 p.m. that night, only Felix returns He pulls his boat up onto the beach. He's all wet. He's disheveled. He tells police that he and Mary had been in the boat running this trot line when both of them accidentally fell into the water. And when he surfaced, he couldn't find her. Hmm. He tells them he also had engine trouble that kept him from reporting the drowning right away. And he tells police she was sitting in the backseat of the boat. She was shining a flashlight as as we looked for stumps. Mary yells to him to watch out, and he turned the boat sharply to the right, causing her to fall out of the boat. Okay. So were they? did they both fall out, or did he turn the boat sharply to the right and caused her to fall out of the boat? Uh, probably depending on what he feels like he should say. He keeps changing his story, <laughs> yeah, and this yeah. is going to happen for a really long time. Okay. But he told them he turned the boat around, he dove into the water, and he couldn't find her. And oh, by the way, Mary can't swim, and she wasn't wearing a life jacket. How convenient. Mary doesn't like being on the water, by the way. Sure. The authorities searched for two days before finding her body on October 30th, 1963, in the river just north of the Halliburton oil docks where Felix said she disappeared. Rescue workers saw that the scarf she had been wearing that day was wrapped around her neck and inside her mouth. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. The coroner said it was an accidental drowning. <laughs> I accidentally had this scarf shoved down my throat and yeah. then I drowned. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit. All right. The funeral was the next day, October 31st, Halloween. Now, Felix wasn't all that torn up about Mary's death. Go figure. Yeah. He didn't show any emotion at the funeral. Mary's brother, Will, will later say that Felix never came to their family to say, I'm so sorry for what happened to Mary, or please forgive me, that kind of thing. Yeah. He never said, I miss her, or Bill's not going to have a mommy, nothing like that. Sure. Mary is buried in Eunice, Louisiana, where Felix didn't pay for a thing. Really? Not the funeral or the burial or even her headstone. Who paid for it? Three years later, the funeral home gets a judge to grant a $1,300 default judgment against Felix. <laughs> he he just stiffed them all. Wow, what a piece of work. Yeah. Then Felix files for the insurance claim on Mary's life. Of course he does. Sure. And the insurance company fights him, and he ends up settling for 
$10,000. Now, he thought he was going to get way more than that. So why did they fight him on it? I have no idea. Okay. All right. Maybe they said it wasn't an accident or yeah. whatever, but he wasn't getting this double indemnity and he only got ten grand. Yeah, I would love to know the whole story behind that because, I mean, especially if the uh, the coroner said it was an accidental drowning. And don't they go by the coroner's report? You'd think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's all hinky. It's very hinky. All right. Four days after the funeral on November 4th, 1962, deputies show up at the chemical plant and Felix is arrested in connection with Mary's death and jailed in Lake Charles. He's fingerprinted, but he refuses to take a polygraph test. Hmm. He listed the address of his sister and brother-in-law in nearby Sulphur, Louisiana, as his address and not the apartment where he and Mary were living with their little boy, Bill. Why would he do that? Because he's no longer there. I guess he's just separating himself from that. Gotcha. Okay. Speaking of little Bill, he spent his first several years with Felix's parents on the dairy farm where his father was raised. Well, good. And after that, he would split his time between his grandparents and his father, which is not such a great idea. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, too. Okay. By November 7th, 1962, Felix is released from jail. Even though the deputies think he had something to do with Mary's death, they don't have anything to keep him or charge him with. Okay. In 1965, Felix moves to San Diego, California, where his younger brother, Ronnie, is stationed in Navy boot camp. And he starts working for, get this, a doctor who is conducting cardiovascular research. And he takes college courses at night. I think he wanted to be a nurse. I think that was his plan at that point. Okay. Why would a doctor hire somebody without any experience? I have no idea. Especially a heart doctor. I have no idea. I find it in the I find it in on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I find it in my research. I bring it to you. On the World Wide Web. Uh-huh. It's like you can see a cardiologist saying, This is my new assistant. This is Kevin. Uh he he works down there at the uh at the Shake Shack, but he's gonna be doing some work for us here. This is Felix. <laughs> His background is working at a chemical plant. Oh, my gosh. And and he has a dead wife, and now he's going to come here and work with me. But don't worry about that. Yeah. No, nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Move along. Jeez. In August of 1966, Bill joins Felix in San Diego, Mm -hmm. and they move into an apartment. In 1967, Felix meets 17-year-old Robin Sinclair at a bus stop in San Diego where she's spending the summer with her sister. Robin is young, and she thinks Felix is worldly. Quote, he was into the metaphysical, getting in touch with the subconscious. He was a different person than I'd ever met before, end quote. Well, this was the 60s. It was. Yeah. Her summer break ends, and she goes home to the Bay Area, leaving Felix behind. But in October of 1968, Felix and Robin see each other again at a concert in San Francisco where she's gone to hear Iron Butterfly play. (laughs) She thinks it's a sign from the universe (laughs) that they belong together. And these two move in together in Hayward, south of Oakland. Okay, so she's 17 and how old is he now? At this point, he's in his 30s. He's old enough to know better, I'll tell (laughs) you that much. I was going to say, yeah. Felix's son, Bill, who is seven at the time, is with him. And Felix let his son, his seven-year-old child, smoke pot and run wild. 
He would make some friends with people at a hamburger stand, and they would feed him. Man. Yeah. After Felix, Robin, and Bill are evicted from where they're staying, then they're house-sitting for a family during the Christmas holidays in 1968. And this is when Robin discovers she's pregnant with Felix's child. Wow. And he tells her, quote, I don't think you're emotionally stable enough to handle the pregnancy, end quote. <laughs> and the next morning she wakes up and Felix and little Bill are gone. Vamos. He leaves her and she moves home to her parents' house and gives birth to a baby girl she names Simone in August of 1969. All right. Robin writes to Felix an angry letter and two months later he showed up and she told him, quote, I never want to see you again, end quote. Good for her. And she never will see Felix again. Okay. Best thing that ever happened to Robin. Okay. When you said that, I thought she'll never see him again because he killed her? Or? No. Uh, <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> see how I'm jumping mm-hmm. to conclusions? Well, it is, it is a homicide. <laughs> it is a true crime podcast. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like when I see a plastic bag on the side of the highway. What's in that? <laughs> exactly. Good pair of shoes, body part. Who yeah. knows? Ten years ago, I just thought it was trash. I know. These uh, are the things I do to you, honey. <laughs> what can I say? I know. <laughs> I love you for it. Well, thank you. Robin says that a friend will tell her that he went back to Mississippi to take Bill to his parents' house so he could go to school. So... That might be partially true, but I think he was out of there because she was pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. In 1969, Felix bicycles across California with a 13-year-old kid named Rob Fremont who lived in San Diego. First off, who's letting a 13-year-old kid bike across California with a guy? Jeez. Yeah. These two also hop a train to Mexico and back, and during their trip, Felix tells Rob— that he killed his first wife, Mary. Wow. He confesses to this kid. Wow. December 1969, while watching an apartment, house-sitting again, mm-hmm. Felix meets Sharon Hensley, who is celebrating her 21st birthday. She, and she's 12. She's 21st. <laughs> she's 21. I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> it just seems like this guy's, yeah, he's all over he the He likes place. them young. Yeah, he does. She's beautiful. She's got long, dark hair. Sharon was a model growing up in North Dakota. She was pretty and popular. She was part of the Demonettes dance team at her high school. Hmm. She dated football players when she was in high school. And after graduating in 1967, she attended Bismarck Junior College, where she took class in dancing and even acted in a play with her brother, Frank. Hmm. In 1968, she discovered she was pregnant And wanted to escape her hometown, so she joined her brother and his girlfriend following the path of other classmates to California, which promised sun, beaches, music, Mm -hmm. free love, (laughs) and drugs. Yeah. And when she arrived in California, she stayed in a home for unwed mothers in San Francisco, giving birth to a baby, putting it up for adoption. Now, her brother loses touch with her, and he moves back to Bismarck, but she stays in California, and by her 21st birthday, she has met Felix Vale. Hmm. These two become a couple. She becomes his girlfriend. Again, she's beautiful. He's a handsome guy. Yeah. Especially by the standards of 1969, 1970. Sure. 
I'll post pictures of him in the in-laws and outlaws. You know, one one of the things that you said that I just thought of was that she lost touch with her brother. Yeah. It's amazing to think that that could happen. I mean, it, of course it could. It's the 60s going into the 70s. So there wasn't the internet. There wasn't a right. cell phone. So, right. so people just lost track of yes. each other. Yeah. Today, you can't get away from anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> By 1970, Felix and eight-year-old Bill and Sharon travel across California and Mexico's Baja Desert. Sharon and he and the little boy are living off of grapes and other food that they can steal from vineyards and orchards. What a life. Bill owned nothing, this little boy. He owned nothing but the shorts he wore and a sleeping bag that he used to sleep in each night. How sad. Bill will later say that his upbringing swayed between the conservative Baptist upbringing by his grandparents to hitchhiking from place to place with his dad while Felix pursued the life of a hippie. For months, Bill lived on a farm run by a religious cult called the Holy Order of Mans. Mm. Bill will say that his dad went through more girlfriends than he could ever count. Sounds like a legit religion. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. Now, Bill was too young when his mother Mary died, and Felix sometimes told him stories, including how his mother drowned, saying, quote, He and my mother were out fishing, and a boat came by and caused a big wave and knocked my mother out of the boat, and she didn't know how to swim and had on no flotation and immediately sank and drowned, end quote. This was story number 37. This is story number three, actually, but yes. Jeez. Felix tells Bill that he almost died himself trying to rescue his mother. Right. Now, by this time, school is back in session, but Felix didn't make Bill go back to school. Little Bill spent his days with his dad and Sharon, and one day when Felix thought little Bill was outside playing, Bill overhears his father crying and talking to Sharon, saying that he had, quote, murdered my mother, end quote. Wow. And Sharon said, quote, oh, I know you just must feel responsible for it, end quote. And Felix said, quote, no, you don't understand. I really did kill her, end quote. And Bill heard all this. And Bill hears this. He's a little kid. And this crushed him. And according to Bill, he decided to pray, talking to God, saying, quote, God, get me home, end Hmm. quote. Meaning he wanted to go home to his grandparents in Mississippi. Yeah. And the Lord answered his prayers. The Lord will provide (laughs) because Bill then meets a 13-year-old migrant worker near a vineyard near Merced, California. Bill tells this kid, who can't believe that Bill is living without a shirt or shoes, what's going on. And these two become friends. And his 13-year-old friend tells him, go turn your dad into the police. There's a town that's two miles from here. Go turn him in. Mm -hmm. And on August 21st, 1970, Bill starts walking And he arrived in the town of Livingston and found the police station. And he told the officers that he was hungry and he was tired of using the drugs his father gave him and that he wanted to go back to school and live like other kids. Wow. And how old was he at this point? Nine. Gee whiz. He also told the officers that he'd overheard his father admit to murdering his mother. You know, if you were a police officer, you'd have to look at this and go, 
okay, is any of this true? Well, it's I mean, interesting that you say that. Yeah. Because a few of the officers were like, this is a little too far-fetched. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just over the top. It's a little too far-fetched. But one detective thought it was all too suspect, yeah. too hinky. Right. At a beach along the Merced River, authorities find 31-year-old Felix and Sharon Hensley, who's now 21, with a bag filled with LSD capsules and a bag of grapes. Mm. That was their only food. Jeez. Felix is arrested with Sharon Hensley for possession of LSD and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. A deputy from Louisiana questions Felix, but he's not charged. Really? Yeah. Bill is taken from his father's custody in California and returned to Mississippi, Mm. where he lives with his grandparents. He's going back to live with his grandparents. Thank God. The National Enquirer actually did a story on Bill. Turning, walking to the police station, turning his dad in and saying he wants to go home. Wow. Felix gets a six-month jail sentence in California, plus three years probation after pleading down to the lesser charge of LSD possession. But the child abuse thing, no, nothing? It, no, just contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And they wow. didn't charge him in Louisiana. Jeez. When Sharon's mother, Peggy, hears that Sharon is in jail. She flew to California with a $5,000 cashier's check to bail Sharon out. And what she found was that the girl she knew as her daughter was completely different. She was disrespectful and she would (laughs) stop and stand on her head doing yoga (laughs) all the time. Wow. Like just stop in her tracks. On January 23rd, 1971, Felix gets out of jail and he returns with Sharon to his family's home in Mississippi. And that same day, Bill is released to live with his grandparents after they gained full custody of him. Good, 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 good. So Bill gets to his grandparents' house and he sees his dad and Sharon walking up the driveway and he is thinking, my dad is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. But his grandfather tells him, don't worry, your dad's not here to hurt you at all. I hope so. (laughs) Bill and his dad sit and talk, and Felix tells his son that he doesn't blame him for his prison stay. He blames Sharon. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He also tells Bill that, quote, she would never bother anyone ever again, end quote. I wonder what that means. That's called foreshadowing. Uh Uh-oh. Ready? Uh huh. <laughs> yep. There you go. That's sad but true. Wow. Felix's family is asking him and Sharon both, "How can you be in Mississippi when you're supposed to be in California for probation?" Yeah. And a day later, the sheriff comes looking for Felix because he skipped probation in California. Jeez. And Felix's mom lies to the sheriff and says. We don't know where Felix is. Wow. (laughs) But four days later, Felix and Sharon duck down in a car while the family members get the couple to Grenada, Mississippi, where these two get on a bus. And Felix's family gives him enough money to make it back to California. Hmm. Yeah. Felix's mom will later say that she didn't know if it was the right thing to do. Quote, we definitely feel that both needed psychiatric help. But there seems to be no way that that can be arranged. So God help them and us is our prayer, end quote. Wow. 
Now, Felix was a writer. He kept journals. And he's writing in these journals, and according to them, these two wind up living in San Bernardino and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. In the summer of 1972, Sharon and Felix show up at Sharon's parents' house in Bismarck, North Dakota. They'd been hitchhiking, eating macrobiotic foods, meditating, and practicing yoga. But the family was horrified when they saw her because Sharon was wearing a mini skirt, but no panties. She stopped shaving her legs and her armpits. She'd lost weight and all of her hair was falling out on her head. She looked terrible. What kind of drugs were they doing? LSD. That was his big one. Wow. While in Bismarck, Felix and Sharon would go to a local park and smoke weed. Mm -hmm. One day, Brian, Sharon's brother, took Felix to the Elks Club. (laughs) The Elks Club? Where Sharon's dad is a member. I have no idea why. I'm sure they were happy to see him. Well, he gets there. He goes into the workout room and Felix takes all his clothes off. He just gets butt-ass naked. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So her family's like, what are you doing with this guy? Yeah, yeah. When Sharon and Felix are at the store with her brother, Felix would chat up the clerk while Sharon stole jars of juice. That's what they were living on, grape juice, and bean sprouts that they grew themselves. What's with the grape? I don't know, but if you drink enough juice, that's like that's like a, a laxative. Yeah, grapes and grape juice. Wow. Well, grapes because they were they were in Wine country in California. Sure, no, I, I know, but it's just everything's grapes and grape juice. Grapes, and, grape juice, I know, and wow. bean sprouts that they grew themselves. Wow. After two weeks of this, Sharon's parents think she's brainwashed and she's not really our daughter anymore. Right. And they ask her and Felix to pack whatever they have, apparently not packing their panties because she's <laughs> not wearing any, <laughs> yeah. and leave. Yeah. The next Christmas... Sharon and Felix are living with his sister in Sulphur, Louisiana. Sharon tells her mother that they were going to New Orleans to make pornographic films. Gee whiz. And on this Christmas, it's the last time Sharon's family would ever hear from her. So she and Felix live in New Orleans where she works as a table dancer at Big Daddy's Strip Club. And according to Felix's journals, he worked at a health food restaurant in New Orleans And was involved in organizing a food co-op. Okay. He also writes that he and Sharon were married under the names Joseph and Helene Martin. (laughs) Okay. Felix and Sharon go to Miami where he says he helped manage another health food store and restaurant. They supposedly stayed at a commune there and worked on a porn film. But by March of 1973, in a letter, Felix Vale tells his parents that he is, quote, not married anymore, end quote, to Sharon Hensley. Okay. Quote, she met a man who has a boat, and although he invited us both, I convinced them I have more pressing things to do at the moment, and so I sent them off to the ocean and each other with my good wishes and blessings. And might I add... To my great relief, end quote. Uh, 
that all sounds pretty hanky too. When he's writing this to his family, he identifies himself as being south of the Tropic of Cancer, saying he was heading south to a grape-growing region. There you are with the grapes again. Man. A thousand miles south. Wow. When Sharon doesn't call home ever again, Peggy, her mother, calls Felix's mom. Then in March of 1974, Felix writes a letter to Peggy saying he was in West Florida and that he shared her concerns about Sharon, but that she's of age and she should have the right and freedom, quote, from you to decide for herself how she wants to live her time on earth, end quote. I'm sure he was trying to convince her, uh, just don't try to get in touch with her. Yeah. He tells Peggy, Sharon's mom, that he'd write down all the things he could think of that would be helpful to her. He tells Peggy that when he last saw Sharon, it was in Key West. Quote, we met this couple from Australia who had a boat they were traveling and living on. I didn't hear their last names or have the occasion to ask if the boat was registered to either of them. If the boat had a name, I didn't see it or hear it mentioned. Anyway, they invited us to marry them and sail around with them. Sharon wanted to, and I didn't. They seemed to be nice, loving people, but I wanted to wait until we could get our own boat. She seemed to think that I was too much of a straight country boy to evolve at her speed, so she decided to leave me. She also said that she was going to try to forget me, her family, and everybody else that she knew so she could become a new person, clean and free from memory associations, end quote. Yeah, right. Jeez. So Felix is telling Sharon's mom that she was island hopping around South America, in the West Indies, maybe Hawaii. Then she was going to spend some time in the Philippines, then India, Egypt, and the Mediterranean. And Sharon's brother is thinking, dude, you don't remember the names of these people or the name of the boat, but you have a detailed memory of the trip they were going to take. Yeah. What gives? Yep. July 24th, 1975, Felix is now living back with his family in Mississippi. He marries a teenager named Sharon Campbell, who will later say she saw pristine surgical saws inside Felix's VW bug. Mm. The sight spooked her so badly, she left the marriage, which she said was never consummated. Wow. In 1977, Felix works on a Western geophysical crew helping carry out surveys, mostly across the South, but also up North. And the workers that he was around recalled that he liked to hang from trees. (laughs) There didn't seem to be much criteria for these uh, high-level jobs back then. I mean, he's a smart guy. Yeah, but still, I mean, a heart doctor and geological surveyist and yeah wow just a guy eating grapes and (laughs) a macrobiotic diet yeah yeah hanging from trees hanging from trees and totally neglecting his child hey let's hire him (laughs) apparently jeez but by june of 1977 his past is catching up with him and felix is arrested by the sheriff's office in steuben county new york on a charge of criminal possession of a controlled substance. There you go. So he's carrying drugs. He gets caught. Yep. December 24th, 1977, Felix marries a woman named Carolyn in San Bernardino, California. A few months later, he travels with a woman named Alexandra Christensen to Mexico, where she says he got a quickie divorce, and those two were married. 
Then weeks later, she said Felix tried to strangle her in the shower. Jeez. Her brother rescued her. Both of these women divorce Felix. How many times has he been married I think now? he's married seven times. Good Lord. By May of 1981, Felix is working in carpentry and living in Houston, Texas. Okay. By August of 1981, he's now 41 years old, and he meets a teenager named Annette Craver at a yard sale in the Montrose neighborhood near downtown Houston, Texas. Okay. She was with her mother, Mary Craver Rose. Annette and her mom were just home from vacation in Mexico, where Annette met a boy and fell in love. His name was Adolfo. Mary and Annette were alone as Annette's dad had died in a car accident two years before. Mm. So Felix rolls up on his motorcycle and he chats up this 15-year-old girl, Annette. And after Mary and Annette moved to Texas, Mary has trouble finding a job and she ended up moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Annette stayed behind and lived with an art teacher near her high school. Annette wanted to be a midwife and she'd already assisted in three births. But after Mary leaves for Tulsa and Annette stays behind, 15-year-old Annette begins dating 41-year-old Felix. Isn't there like a law that says you're not allowed to do that kind of thing? It's called statutory rape. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she's jailbait, right? She has to be 18. Yeah, absolutely. So in May of 1982, Annette moves to Tulsa, Oklahoma to live with her mother, Mary Rose, after her graduation. And with money her daughter had from her dad's death in this accident, her mom purchased a house with a rental cottage behind it. And days later, Felix, who's been secretly dating Annette, shows up. And Felix convinced Annette to leave with him on his motorcycle. And these two just go. And they would survive off of Annette's $500 a month social security check. And grapes. And grapes. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. In the months that follow, they visit Mexico, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, and other parts of Central America. It will be over a year before Mary hears from her daughter again. And when she does, Mary learns that Annette became pregnant and then underwent a painful abortion. Annette tells her mother that they rode south of the border near Cancun, where the boy she fell in love with on her trip to Mexico lived. And she tells her mom in a December 4th, 1982 letter that she looked everywhere for Adolfo and that Felix had threatened to leave her because of her fantasies of Adolfo. Wow. Who's her age, by the way? Yeah, exactly. She does see Adolfo when she's there. Mm -hmm. He's teaching children and doing artwork. Mm. July 7th, 1983, California authorities arrest Felix for violating probation a dozen years earlier. Right. Annette waits at her Aunt Nancy's house, and her Aunt Nancy is like, things are strange, end Mm. quote. (laughs) That's an understatement. August 15th, 1983, after getting out of jail, Felix marries Annette Craver in Bakersfield, California. But because Annette is only 17, she had to get permission. And her mom didn't want her to do it. But Annette told her mother that being married would keep Felix from getting into trouble for traveling with a minor. I'm doing it for Felix, mom. Good Lord. She tells her mom that if she says no, they're just going to get married in Mexico. And her mom feels like she has no other choice. So she gives her permission because she doesn't want her daughter to run off and never contact her ever again. Right, right. Wow. December 7th, 1983, Annette Craver Vale 
She's married now, turns 18, making it possible for her to receive more than $98,000 in life insurance money left by her late father. Hmm. She and Felix withdraw all the money from a bank in San Antonio, Texas. I was going to say, they're going to blow through that real quick. They pay off loans that Felix had. They buy a Fiat convertible and they deposit $36,000 into Louisiana savings. She writes in a February 17, 1984 note, quote, as of today, we have $41,600 in cash, end quote. Hmm. She pays off his loans. Yeah. April 1984, Annette returns to the Tulsa home of her mother, saying that she's left Felix and that he had tried to hit her, breaking two fingers when he missed her and hit the wall. Oh, too bad. She talks of divorcing and enrolling in college. Felix shows up several weeks later, and they fight nonstop because Annette would talk about how she wanted to go out with men who were her own age. (laughs) Go figure. Felix storms off. Then he writes her a letter vowing that their time apart would make their love grow deeper. Okay. Quote, after we hung up, I went out to a park and ran and hung and talked with God and smoked some and shot some pool and rode with the top down through the marsh playing Iron Butterfly. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> End quote. What a charmer. He wrote that creating roots, quote, between your spirit and the cosmic ground of love makes me hot for you. My mind is kissing you everywhere, end quote. Uh, I have no words. Yeah. The next month, May 4th, 1984, under pressure from her daughter and son-in-law, Mary deeds the two homes she owns in Tulsa to her daughter, Annette Craver Vale, for $7,000. Two months later, Annette added her husband, Felix, to the deed. You knew that was coming. Yep, yep. By that fall, they told neighbors they were leaving on vacation. When Felix returned to Tulsa in October, he was driving the blue Fiat alone. Mm. And when a neighbor, Wendy Austin, asked, where's Annette? Why are you coming home alone? Felix told her that Annette had a lot of money on her when they parted company and that she might see some people she knew in Denver. He told her that Annette was, quote, restless about pursuing her own fantasies outside the relationship and that she didn't say one way or another if she would ever feel like coming back, end quote. (laughs) By October of 1984, Mary discovers that Felix has returned to Tulsa without her daughter. And Felix tells Mary that they'd gone camping in Missouri and that Annette didn't want to return to Tulsa. He said he took her to a railways bus station with her destination, quote, unknown. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. He then tells Mary that Annette left him spontaneously after a sexual dream, taking $50,000 in cash with her and giving him ten grand to fix up the house in Tulsa. Unable to reach her daughter and unable to get a clear answer about where she is, she files a missing persons report. Wow. By December... Mary writes a letter to the Tulsa police telling them that her daughter Annette has received, quote, a large sum of money, end quote, and that she suspects foul play. Mm-hmm. And by December 17th of 1984, Felix files for divorce, citing, quote, irreconcilable compatibility, end quote, with Annette and an inability to find her after a, quote, diligent search, end quote. Yeah, right. So by January of 1985, Tulsa police questioned Felix at length. 
He says his wife, Annette, decided to leave him and that he dropped her off at the Trailways bus station in St. Louis on September 16, 1984. By the way, there's only a Greyhound bus station there. Okay. Felix tells police that Annette was heading to Denver to get a fake ID and tells others that she went to Mexico with a group of men. When he's asked about the $98,000 his wife received, Felix tells police they spent a lot of the money traveling in foreign countries and that she had taken fifty grand with her. And he tells police she only left me with $10,000 to help take care of property repair in Tulsa. Hmm. So that's January, and now we're in August of 1985. August 14th, the Tulsa police closed the case, and Felix Vale continues to live in Tulsa in this home. Wow. In the mornings, he works out, and at night, he has sex with as many women as he can, sometimes in the same night, according to his journals. Hmm. He became friends with a guy named Scott Porter. They lifted weights together, and then they would go to the buffet to build muscle. Okay. What is this? What's, what's the name of that movie that... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger did. Pumping iron? Yeah. <laughs> what is this, pump? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Felix thought he was a martial artist. <laughs> he would do flying kicks into a mattress on the wall. <laughs> Such a loser. <sighs> Scott will later say that he and Felix talked about the women they had in their lives. And while Felix, at age 45, was married to Annette, just 18, Scott, who was 28, had dated Annette's mother, Mary, who was 36. Oh, what a great pair. Go, Mary. Go, Mary. Go, (laughs) go, go, Mary. Wow. That's just... Mary's a cougar. (laughs) Everything's just so wrong about this whole situation. But Mary tells Scott, something's not right with Annette's disappearance. It's not sitting with me right. And so Scott started listening more closely to what Felix would say. And a year later, when Scott got married, Felix actually hit on his wife when Scott comes home to Tulsa. Wow. And when Scott confronts him, Felix says, it was your wife who was hitting on me. Of course. It's always everybody else. Yeah. And Scott says in the famous newspaper article, Gone, that he wanted to throw Felix off a bridge that crossed the (laughs) Arkansas River, wondering if he could get away with murder. Yeah. Wow. In September of 1985, Felix tells Mary, after she gets a tip, she finds out where he is. He's at a friend's house. She shows up. She confronts him, and he tells her that Annette had called him and said she was having a baby and was living with the natives in the jungle and traveling with two men. (laughs) He said she was in Mexico, and when she asked more, where is she? Like, let me give me more details. Sure. He said the two of them had a pact to contact each other every five years, which was different than what he told her in the beginning when they were never going to talk to each other. Right. Ever. Wow. He never stood up and he never looked at Mary when he was talking to her because he's spewing lies. Yeah. Yeah. In December of 1987, Mary Rose moves back to Tulsa, continuing to investigate the case. She hires her own private investigators to find Annette. But when she couldn't afford them anymore, she just starts contacting Felix's friends and relatives. She turns into the private investigator herself. Sure. She learns that when Felix came home without Annette, he was drunk. And she also learns that Felix's first wife drowned 
And when he was once asked why he married Mary Horton, his first wife, mm -hmm. the reason was, quote, so no one else could have her, end quote. Oh, well, there's some foreshadowing there. This is when Mary Rose learns that another woman who was with Felix had also disappeared and that her mother had called for years asking for any information. And he says to her, this is what she finds out. Someone says to her, I think her name was Sharon. In 1988, Felix, who's now 49 years old, moves back into his parents' house in Mississippi. And even though he's trying to collect rent from these Tulsa homes he got from his then-wife, Annette, he never pays rent while living with his parents. Of course he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But he does take care of his parents in their last years. And according to his journals, he often traveled to Tulsa and sometimes other places across the United States, but mostly in Mississippi and to West Point in Houston and other nearby areas to play pool, to go to strip clubs, and sometimes have sex with women, sometimes in an old bus that he had. Yeah. So he's writing all this down. Yeah. December 7th, 1988, about a year after Annette disappears, Felix starts spending time with a girl named Beth Field. And while they dated, Felix continually called her a whore. And when she asked him why he hit her, he said, quote, quit behaving like a whore and I'll quit hitting you. Good Lord. Wow. But Beth gets a phone call from Annette's mom, Mary Rose who's so damn hot on Felix's trail, man, mm -hmm. she's not letting it go. But she tells her that her daughter Annette disappeared after being with Felix and that his first wife had drowned and she thought Felix was behind both of them. And yeah. after that, Beth was fully aware when she was with Felix that she could be next. Right. So Beth does this meditation course trying to get her head on straight. And while she's there, Felix shows up. And when she asks him about his involvement with Annette's disappearance and his first wife Mary's death, he would deny any involvement. But one time he said to her, quote, what if I said yes, end quote. Four months after this meditation class, Felix came to her house drunk and abusive, and a judge in Tulsa County, Oklahoma, grants a protective order against Felix, concluding that he has beaten up and bruised his girlfriend, Beth Field, a year earlier, he had blackened her eyes and burst her eardrum. Good the sheriff man. reports to the judge that Felix is now nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Then in the early 1990s, Robin Sinclair, remember her? Mm -hmm. He got her pregnant and left her. Right. She sets out to find him to remind him that he had a daughter named Simone who he had never met. And she was going to run an ad in a Mississippi newspaper looking for him. Uh-oh. And when she starts to get ready to do this ad, the newspaper put her in touch with him. They were like, oh, you don't have to put an ad in the paper. Here's Felix's number. Oh, wow. And when she finally meets up with him again, she realizes, I loved this, what a loser he was. <laughs> it took her this long to figure that out? It, it took her that long. Wow. The summer of 1991, Mary learns from Felix's sister, Sue, that he and her daughter, Annette, visited them in Louisiana in October of 1984, weeks after he told Tulsa police he put Annette on a bus to Mexico. Oh. And Sue says the couple left only for Felix to return alone days later. And Sue also tells Mary Rose that his first wife, Mary Horton Vale, drowned and that his common-law wife, Sharon Hensley, disappeared. 
By 1994, Mary Rose tracks down their families and she talks with a national expert named Jim Bell. He's a national expert from the FBI in serial killings. Okay. And Mary talks to him a bunch. And he started looking into the 1962 death of Mary Horton and the 1973 disappearance of Sharon Hensley and the 1984 disappearance of Annette Craver. Mm. But Agent Bell stopped working in the violent criminal division and the case went cold. So she reaches out to Mary Horton's family, his very first wife, telling them all about Annette. And she shares her suspicions about what Felix has done. Okay. So in 1994, she contacts the Tulsa police and Detective Lori Visser interviews Felix, who gives conflicting stories about his ex-wife, Annette. And despite all these conflicts, the case grows cold again. They don't have anything to hold him on. Right, right. And by the summer of 1997, discouraged that nothing was happening, Mary Rose moves to Massachusetts in hopes of starting a new life. She holds a funeral service for her daughter, Annette, in order to let her go. Mm. Now, I want to stop here and talk a little bit about Bill, Mary Horton, and Felix's son. Right. After he went to live with his grandparents, he became an Eagle Scout. He graduated high school and went on to Mississippi State University, where he graduated in the top 5% of his class with a degree in mechanical engineering. Good for him. He worked for Sinclair Oil Company and remained active in his church and with the Boy Scouts. He got married, but Bill would die in 2009 of esophageal cancer. He was only 47 years old. Oh, man. But two years after Bill's death on April 27, 2011, a tornado hurls Felix and his trailer across his property in Mississippi. (laughs) There's some karma. The Lord will provide. (laughs) Exactly. He survives and lives some of his time in an apartment in Starkville after this tornado. Okay. And days later on May 14th, Mary Rose, accompanied by Jackson, Mississippi, Clarion Ledger reporter Jerry Mitchell, they knock on the door of Felix's Airstream trailer. He's gone, but she decides to look inside this damaged trailer where she finds a stack of machetes and swords. They leave, and she shares with Mitchell a stack of documents. She shares with this reporter everything that she's collected on the case. And Jerry Mitchell is now all about it with Mary Rose. Right. After Bill dies and they learn of a recording Bill made, in this recording, he makes statements about overhearing his dad talking about murdering his mother. Wow. So his son is talking about his late mom from the grave. Right. In the summer of 2012, they learn of this recording where Bill says his dad killed his mom. From Kay Faulkner, of all people, Felix's sister, who mm-hmm. told them to, to try to get a copy of the recording because she thought that Felix had murdered Mary and Sharon Hensley and Annette Craver. Right. And the Clarion Ledger reporter Jerry Mitchell starts tracking down everyone who came in contact with Felix and or his female companions. Everyone starts to share the same thing. Nobody believed when Mary Horton died that it was an accident. Mm. So Jerry Mitchell shares a copy of the 1962 autopsy of Mary Horton Vale with renowned pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden. Oh, wow. And Rob knows I love his show, even though you can only watch like the old episodes on HBO. He is so interesting. He really is. He concludes that the death is a homicide. 
that the report showed large bruises with bleeding into tissues on the left side of the neck, which he said suggested she suffered forceful neck trauma before entering the water. There were hemorrhagic bruises to the right calf and left leg above the knee, which he said were consistent with a struggle before she goes into the water. Mm. But most convincing of all was the scarf authorities found around her neck that extended four inches into her mouth, which suggested traumatic asphyxia. Right. Before she's put in the water. Quote, somebody had to push that scarf into her mouth. She had to have that scarf wedged in her mouth before she was put in the water. End quote. Jeez. On Labor Day weekend 2012, Felix Vale loads up his possessions from his trailers. He sells his property to his neighbor, not telling his family or friends where he's going. By November 11th of 2012, the Clarion Ledger publishes Gone, a nearly 9,000 word story on Felix. And another person comes forward, Wesley Turnage, who said that he had a car ride with Felix in 1963 where he called Mary a bitch and said that she thought another child would help save their marriage. And he said, Felix said, quote, she wanted to have another kid. I didn't want the one I got. I fixed that sorry bitch. She will never have another one, end quote. Gee whiz. They also learned that the DA at the time dismissed the case. In fact, he dismissed a ton of criminal cases back then. And the detectives who were on the original murder case of Mary Horton were told that the DA, his name was Mr. Assaulter, wouldn't allow them to present their evidence to the grand jury. Why? He was just dismissing all these cases. Apparently, like, three big criminal cases a day he was dismissing. He just didn't want to deal with them? Yeah. Didn't want to work? Didn't want to do it. Wow. But the current DA, John DeRossi, said he would reopen the case if there was enough evidence. Okay. December 2012, David Thomason transfers his property at 737 Shady View Dry, Canyon Lake, Texas, to Felix Vale, who begins fixing the property and living there. Because remember, he yeets out, doesn't tell anybody where he's going. Yeah. Another reader of the article, Gone, calls the newspaper and gives them the information, hey, Felix, that guy, he's at Canyon Lake, Texas. (laughs) So on January 18th of 2013, the Calcasieu Parish Deputy Randy Curtis confronts Felix Vale, who at this time is living in a storage shed, about his first wife's death and the two missing girls. He refuses to speak about the women, saying families have lied about him and that the Clarion Ledger is part of a, quote, conspiracy against him, end quote. Sure it is. And the whole time he's saying this, he's smirking. (laughs) So Mary's brother, Will Horton, gives a phone number of Felix's cousin to the reporter who was the caretaker of a 90-year-old man named Isaac Absher Jr. And Isaac tells the reporter, Mitchell, that he worked with Felix, and once when Felix and Mary were married, he moved out. And at work, he was angry, talking about how ugly his wife was when she was pregnant and how he didn't like his baby. But more than that, on the Friday before she was killed, the couple visited Isaac, bringing little baby Bill with them. And Mary privately asked Isaac if he thought Felix could take her baby away if she left him. Okay. Two days after that, Mary was dead. Wow. So Isaac was part of the rescue effort when they started dragging the lake, and he was there when they found Mary's body. And Isaac said everyone on the boat was so angry 
because they all knew that Felix had killed Mary. Her body was rigid and a scarf was wrapped around her neck and down her throat. There were witnesses who claimed that Felix had told them he didn't love his wife and that he was sleeping with multiple women (laughs) and at least one man. Really? And then when I read that, I thought, what happened to the little kid, the 13-year-old who rode bikes with him across California? Well, yeah, I mean, that, actually, that was my first thought when I'm going, yeah, a grown man doing with a 13-year-old, yeah, that's yeah. just inappropriate and wrong. Yeah. yeah. And remember how Felix had told everybody that they had, like, put out these trot lines, two of them? Right. But when police actually looked at it, these two detectives looked at it, these lines were still in Felix's tackle box. Everybody thought that Felix had murdered Mary. Right. On April 30th, Mitchell, the journalist who wrote the article Gone, he gets a call saying that Felix has left Texas. And then he's pulled over by police in Columbus, Mississippi, and then he hops a fence. (laughs) Felix's sister heard that maybe Felix was going home to Mississippi, and she wondered if maybe he was going there to confront Wesley Turnage who would be the star witness they'd have in their case when they called Wesley to say he's out and about. You should be careful. Watch your back. Wesley said, quote, if he sets foot on my property, there won't be no trial, end quote. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Bring it on, Felix. Yeah, yeah. On May 17th, 2013, Felix Vale is arrested and charged with murder in the death of his first wife, Mary. He is taken and held without bond at the Calcasieu Parish Correctional Center. His recount of the story of what happened to Mary in 2013 was vastly different than in 1962. And okay, memories fade, but traumatic memories are pretty damn clear in my opinion. Yep, they're like photographs. He told police the first time Mary was sitting on top of the boat seat when she fell out. This time she's kneeling at his feet and he hit a stump. Also, it was different from the story that he told his son, Bill, that a rogue wave came from another boat and dumped him out in the water. right. He blamed the families and the journalist Mitchell, quote, an evil, shrimpy reporter, end quote, (laughs) for what had happened, calling the charges, quote, fabricated, end quote, and insisting that, quote, a large amount of money, hate, and political ambitions are behind them, end quote. (laughs) It's everybody else. Everybody else. Yeah. In Felix's home, they find his journals, women's jewelry, old buttons, pins, photos, one of them of a naked three-year-old girl who was now an adult. And his journals showed that he had stalked this girl for years. They find Annette Craver's birth certificate. And his journals are dominated by sex, dreams of sex, and his obsession with children. And when they started interviewing people who'd worked with Felix, they got stories where Felix told one man that the best sex of his life was with a two- or a three-year-old girl. Oh, my gosh. He's a monster. Yeah. Then another call came in that during a party in 1965, a boast fest happened, and Felix boasted that he had done something nobody else had done. He'd killed his wife. He told them that he held her head underwater until she drowned. The person who told this story put them in contact with Rob Fremont, the kid who bicycled around California with him. Mm. And he had the same story, only this time he hit his wife on the head and then drowned her, held her head underwater. Wow. So all the chickens are coming home to roost. Sure. But by golly, it's taken 50 years. Yeah. 
In August of 2016, the murder trial of Felix Vale is slated to begin. District Attorney John DeRossier and his assistant district attorney Hugo Holland are teaming up to prosecute Felix. Public defender Andrew Casanave is representing him. Prosecutors call all three families to testify, Mary Horton's family, Sharon Hensley's family, and Annette Craver's family. But when Mary Rose, who had been working for 32 years for this very moment, (laughs) took the stand, Felix couldn't even look at her. Wow. So the DA showed all this evidence. They talked about all the stories he told. All of those people got up on the witness stand and said that he murdered Mary. The forensic evidence showed the same thing because when you die from drowning, the body usually floats face down with arms hanging. But Mm. Mary was stiff when they brought her out of the water and her arms were crossed over her chest. Mm. She was dead long before he put her into the water. The jury didn't even take a half hour to reach their verdict. William Felix Vale Sr. was unanimously found guilty of murdering Mary Horton. He was sentenced to life in prison. After the verdict, the prosecutor also revealed that the FBI had found out that Felix had molested a child over 30 years ago. They were unable to put him on trial for it because the statute of limitations was over. It had passed. But finally, nearly 54 years after she was murdered, Mary Horton had found justice. And 42 years after her disappearance, Sharon Hensley's body has never been found, but her family found justice. And after searching for 32 years, although Annette's body has also never been found, Mary Rose had justice for her daughter, Annette. Yeah. And because of Mary Rose, Felix went to jail. Good. Now, today, Felix is serving his life sentence in the Louisiana State Pen in Angola for the murder of his first wife, Mary. He is 84 years old. Wow. And he is still kicking. Man. But that is the story of the Gone Girls. And that's all I have to say about that. She is only one, but what if one is all that's needed? Hospice nurse Indy Luce has fallen in love. After caring for billionaire Louis Thornberry until his final breath, she's now engaged to marry the heir apparent of the global tech empire, David Thornberry. But as the divinely marked Indy packs up her old life to begin anew, a sacred promise comes back to haunt her with a vengeance. As an unrelenting spiritual battle unfolds in the shadows, the descendants of those like Indy find themselves persistently lured and ensnared as a relentless surge of evil becomes an unstoppable force. With malevolent entities following her every step, what Indy doesn't know about her family's sacred covenant could tip the scales of good and evil. The follow-up to the paranormal suspense novel Lead Me From Temptation and book two of the Divine Darkness series Deliver Me From Evil is now available March 29th, 2024, wherever you buy or download books or go to chriscalvert.com. If evil prowls seeking someone to devour, can one woman seek and save that which is lost? Well, better late than never. I know that that was a ton of information, but he came in contact with so 
many women. He was such a heinous person to so many people. And I wanted to try to get as many of those names in there as possible. Well, and too, I mean, you look at someone, obviously he was an intelligent person. Yeah. IQ wise. Yeah. But the fact that his life just went spiraling out of control year after year after year after year and ended up living in a shed. Yeah, he's in a shed. Yeah. But that's because he's hiding. That was because he was off hiding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, he was just a monster. monster. Yeah. And the thing is, all of these women, so many of them could have given him a lovely, a lovely life. Yeah. His first wife, Mary, lovely person. Yeah. Could have given him a wonderful life. Right. But he was just a sadistic killer, a horrible, horrible, narcissistic, selfish person. Yeah. And he sits in a jail cell now. He's not too pretty anymore. I'll post a picture of that too. Yeah. 84. You just, you can't kill him. No. <laughs> well, let's get away from sadistic killers and go to sadistic, stupid people. Okay. All right. With a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. First one I'm calling. No, uh, no, 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 no. That's That's my evil twin. You know, people always bring up the fact that you and I both go, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> we have friends who have said, do you realize that both of you go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> All right. A 19-year-old guy is in some trouble after carjacking a woman. And it oh. is, it's a little disturbing, but the end of it is okay. So, Okay. Uh, carjacking a woman driving for a rideshare company. Oh, wow. Jeremiah Vedner Charles ordered a lift ride back in October. According to reports, once he got to his destination, that's when things took a turn. Charles punched the female driver in the head, arm, stomach. Now, while being continuously hit, the woman jumped out of the car. That's the good part. Smart. Yep. It was at this point, Charles hopped into the driver's seat and took off with the woman's Toyota Corolla. Now then. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't hard for the police to track Charles down. He booked the lift ride through his own account. Oh my gosh. With his real name. A subpoena to the Lyft company gave cops all his information. Wow. And they tracked him down. Yeah, pretty they easily. E- yeah, well, they even found the victim's car near his home. So he was arrested and serving time. Most of those have cameras in them. Yeah. Most of those rideshare places, you know, Uber, yeah. all of them have cameras. Don't yeah. act a fool with your mm-hmm. Uber or your Lyft driver. No. <laughs> all right, number two. I'm calling this one. Uh, maybe a little Prevagen would help. Now he's making fun of me. No, not. <laughs> Got to take my prevagen so I can remember stuff. <laughs> a dad in Connecticut, well, he called the cops to report his kids missing after he popped into a grocery store and they weren't in the car when he got back. Okay. But it just turned out he was drunk and didn't realize oh, he forgot well. his kids at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got a DUI and arrested. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> okay, now this third one, it's a little graphic, and it's really not a bless you heart, but it's sort of a bless you heart. But you just had to give it to us today. Well, part of the reason, it, because it came from my best friend from high school. He, he texted me, Tommy Milligan, and gave me this this story because it happens in our hometown of Sydney, Ohio. Okay, I All think right. that's worthy of a bless your heart. It is. So I'm calling this one, can't quite put my finger on this one. So thanks, Tommy. Okay. In February, Sydney police officer Kiara Kennedy responded to the Sydney Walmart 
Okay. <laughs> it's always in a Walmart. In regards to an amputated finger being discovered in the parking lot. What? <laughs> yeah. Upon arrival, the officer recovered what appeared to be an amputated finger. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Investigators transported the finger to the Montgomery County Coroner's Office, at which point it was confirmed that the finger was, in fact... Human. A human finger, likely that of a white female. Oh, wow. Now, as of date, no medical providers can provide information that links the fingers to any recent patient. Did they fingerprint the finger? <laughs> well, I don't know that. <laughs> but, but... This is where I just. This is why I said a bless your heart. This is actually a bless your heart for the police department. The police department at this point does not have any reason to believe. Wait for it. The finger's amputation was a result of any suspicious actions. What? <laughs> it's not suspicious that there's just a random finger in the in the parking in the lot parking lot. Yeah, exactly. I have a Walmart. I thought you were going to tell me it was like a. A rubber finger or something that somebody found. No. However, until explanation can be established of how the finger came to be at the parking lot of the Walmart. Yeah. This case will remain open for all investigative Wow. If you've lost a finger, come forward. (laughs) I do have a number for anyone that may have any information of that. Uh, You can call the Sydney Police Department at 937-498-2351 or leave the information with Crime Stoppers at 937-492-2351. 8477. You never know. Somebody <laughs> might hear this and know something. Yeah. So, it, but it's not suspicious. <laughs> well, you know what I say? Bless who bless her heart, whoever lost the finger. Bless I her know. heart. I know. Somebody like did she get her finger caught in the door? I don't know. Well, I always think about, you know, they talk about people getting their finger cut off for jewelry. Oh yeah. That's like a mob thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 You you want the rock, you just take the whole finger. Yeah. Well, well that took a hearts. dark turn on the bless your heart. <laughs> Sorry, wow. Thanks, thanks, Tommy. <laughs> thanks for that, Tommy. <laughs> well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, yeah. all you gotta do is go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu, and while yeah. you're there, you can suggest a case yeah. or tell us about your brush with true crime. Or if you found a finger in the parking lot of a Walmart. Or if you've got information on that finger in the Walmart parking lot in Sydney, Ohio. There you go. That's all we have today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.